But today uh, is the beginning of a new sermon series for us here, a sermon series that we're calling Give Yourself Away, which probably conjures up the, the melody of the familiar U2 song by the same name, and I'm here to say that this has nothing to do with U2 whatsoever. Um, but this series reflects uh, the, a natural progression in my mind from our previous series. You know, going back to Easter, we, we looked at the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it seemed natural to me to go in and talk then about the Holy Spirit of God, because that's kind of what happened next, right? Jesus said it's better for the Holy Spirit to come than for me to stay here. Well, coming out of that series, what, what's the natural progression? I think this this series represents that natural progression uh, for me. Uh, you know, now what looked at the the importance of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has filled us. He has anointed us and he's made his dwelling in us in order that we might use the gifts that God has given us to go and benefit others. That in short, the Holy Spirit is calling us to be other minded people. He's calling us to be other centric people. He's calling us to love. And so in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, it was, in one word, help me out, love, right? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as who? As yourself. And so the Holy Spirit calls us to think about not ourselves, but about everyone else. And that is very different than the world that I grew up in. It's likely different from the world that you grew up in. I grew up in a world that encouraged me to pursue the best so that I could enjoy the best. And so from a young age, I was taught by the world around me that the, the right path in life, if you will, the path worth pursuing was the path of success. And so success meant that in every context, I need to be the best, I needed to have the best. And so I pursued that path. I, I tried to be the best student who had the best grades. I tried to be the first to finish the test and I tried to have the best score on the test. I tried to be the best at baseball, someone who threw the ball the fastest and, and most accurately and who had the best glove and the best batting average. Uh, and as I got older, that drive and pursuit continued to be reinforced in me by the culture all around me. We were told to get the best education, to do the most community service, to get the best SAT scores, all of that so that I could get into the best colleges, that offered the best majors, that would springboard me into the best careers, that paid the best salaries, so that I could buy the best house, have the best car, live in the best cities, and work for the best companies. And once I did that, once I had the best, then I would be the best. And the world would stop and admire who I was, what I had done, and I would live happily ever after. And so for over 20 years, I was taught to strive after the best that this life has to offer, to pursue it with reckless abandon so that I could enjoy the fruits of a significant life. So the question is, what is a significant life? I grew up believing that meant to be financially comfortable, if not wealthy, uh, to have people who looked up to me, who admired me, who, who followed me, to borrow a social media term, and to ask how high when I suggested they jump. I was taught that if I worked for the very best, I would eventually have the very best. Was that a lie? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But was that the life that God wanted for me? Was that the life that God wanted for me? Because in my youth, 
and perhaps even into adulthood, that's the question I never once stop to consider. What kind of life does God want for me? And perhaps that's a question that you've never stopped to consider. What does God want for your life? And so that's the question that we're going to begin with this morning. I invite you to stand. Let's go to God in a word of prayer as we get started, if you're able. And uh, let's just invite him to be present. Most righteous and holy and heavenly Father, we, we just come before you this morning uh, humbled to be in your presence, uh, grateful to be able to call you Abba Father, grateful for your love and your mercy. And just the, lately in life, I just find myself recognizing how merciful you must be because I know the, the depths of my heart, and I'm sure everyone here can say this, Lord, and you just are merciful to us. You see our shortcomings, you see our faults, you see all the ways that we fall short of your glory. And you show us mercy. You show us love. You, you put your arm around us and you, you, you carry us when we fall. Father, you have blessed us, every single one of us, with way more than we could ever deserve. We, we've done nothing to earn this, but Father, you've blessed us. And Lord, this morning as we, we get ready to talk about your word and try to understand your word, Father, I pray that you would just send your spirit into this room. I pray that you would open our ears, that you'd open our hearts, and that you would show us something new this morning. Show me something new, Father. Speak through me. I pray this every week, but Lord, I don't want to be the one talking up here. I just want to be your mouthpiece. So, Father, as you, as you will it and as you enable me, Father, help me to speak boldly the Word of God. Help us to hear the Word of God and, and allow it to refine us, to shape us, to mold us, to change us. That we would not flee from change, but that we would run toward it. Not by our will, but by yours. And through your mercy and because of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Can be seated. <clears throat> so this morning's message is largely going to be based on Luke chapter 22. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke 22. I'm not going to be projecting everything. I'll be projecting some things that I, I want to draw your attention to specifically. Uh, but over the last several years, as my, my role in the church has shifted and changed, I've had to learn how to develop a new and a different skill set. And admittedly, it's the kind of skill set that has come less natural to me than it has for some, for some of you, in fact, including my wife. And that's leadership. That's a new skill set that I've had to work at developing. And so leadership is a topic that I, I really enjoy learning about. It's a topic that I really enjoy studying. And it's also one that I've had to work at quite a bit because what has often come most natural to me I've learned is not what is most effective. And so when I go back to my childhood and my, that pursuit of the best that I opened with this morning, what I, what I didn't realize at the time that I've come to realize later in life as an adult was that with that achievement of success or of a significant life, um, I had some preconceived ideas, some preconceived notions, some preconceived behaviors that I was going to need to work to fight against. And so without realizing it, uh, being successful in my mind was sort of equated with being the authority or being the boss 
Uh, some of you encounter that. It was like if I, if I paid my dues and did what other people told me to do, then there would come a time when I would be able to tell other people what they should do. You know, it's, it's what I read about in books. It's what I saw on TV, that that's what leadership was. And uh, it wasn't to be cruel. It wasn't to be malicious in any way. It's just that I, I didn't know any other way. It's kind of like a, a role to play. In any organization, there had to be a manager and there had to be the managed or there had to be a boss and an employee or a director and the directed. And so for thousands and thousands of years, when we go back and we look at history, that's exactly the kind of leadership model that we see. Um, we call this a patronal society, that in any patronal society, uh, there are two kinds of people. There's a patron and there is a client. And so last year, I came across an article this week. Last year, a woman named Debbie Thomas uh, wrote an academic article for the Theology of Leadership Journal where she said this, she said, the patron-client social structure placed expectations on wealthy rulers to share favors with poor clients. And the clients, in turn, were to offer gratitude in the form of honor and loyalty and testimony and service to the patron. The clients were expected to act loyally to the patron, even to the point of risking their own health, their own positions, or even their own lives. And she continued, she said, in the patron-client social structure that was prevalent, patrons who possessed power and wealth and clients who acted in complete gratitude was not only acceptable, but it was the expected and appropriate social relationship. That the whole society was built on these very relationships. And since all relationships were built within the patronage system, not only the most rich and powerful, but the poorest fit these categories. And so all of society was this web of patron-client relationships on different scales. And it was interesting as I was thinking about that this week, that as we, as we were, think about Scripture, we see this reflected all throughout Scripture, specifically even in the days of Jesus. You look at Matthew chapter 8. Jesus encounters a Roman centurion, a man who is in charge of 80 to 100 Roman soldiers, who has a servant at home, we're told, is paralyzed. And so he seeks out Jesus because he wants his servant to be healed. And so in verse 7 of chapter 8, it says, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And I'm curious, think about that. Why, why does he say that right there? Why does he say, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof? It's because in the relationship between Jesus and centurion, the centurion views Jesus as the patron and himself as the client, right? But listen what, what it, how it continues. He says, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one go and he goes and I tell that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And so now in that situation, the centurion is who? He's the patron in that relationship, right? And that was the norm. For the centurion, he operated in a world where he did what he was told by his superiors, and those who were under him did what they were told by him. And so for the last 2,000 years, that's by and large been the way that the world has worked. It's, it's much of the way that uh, the world still works, and that's the form of leadership that I was raised believing was leadership. 
I, I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's the deep military roots on both sides of my family. It certainly wasn't the way I was raised, but, but there it was. Maybe it was a skewed outlook on life that I had. I really don't know what to attribute that to, but that's how I thought the world was supposed to work. And as you may, as it may not surprise you at this point in time, kind of like an infomercial, right? There is a better way. I found out in time that there is a different way to lead. And so in the 1970s, there was a man by the name of Robert Greenleaf. Don't know if you've ever heard of Robert Greenleaf. He was an executive for AT&T. And he began to turn this patron-client model kind of on its head. It began in 1958. He was reading this book by Herman Hesse called Journey to the East, which is a story about a group of men who are on a journey, and they're helped by a servant by the name of Leo. And I haven't read this book. I just kind of read the synopsis. And it's only later in the this, in this story that they find out that Leo was not some servant after all, at least not in the way that you generally think of him. He was, in fact, this esteemed leader in the community. And it reminded me as I was reading that of a piece I saw on the Internet just this week about the traffic jam at the top of Mount Everest, uh, where there has literally been lines that are hundreds of people long waiting to get to 29,000 and some odd feet to stand on the summit, which is about the size of two ping pong tables. Everyone wants to get up there to the very, very top. And that wait to get to the top is actually killing people because it takes a little bit of time. Everyone wants to have their turn. But what the piece said was that while there was, has suddenly been the significant spike in people who are summiting Everest for the first time, who are scaling the highest mountain in the world, the, the numbers about that are, are a little bit deceiving because I think it was first scaled in the 1950s and now there's hundreds and hundreds of people a year who are actually doing it. But it's a little bit misleading because uh, in the 1990s, there was a new type of business that emerged around those Everest expeditions where the Sherpas or the, the local people would actually be hired to assist in helping get climbers from the bottom to the top of the mountain. And so basically, you go in, you hire a Sherpa, and they carry your bags, they set up your tents, and, and they otherwise guide you on this journey to the, the highest point on planet Earth. And then you, you sort of revel in the moment, right? You take lots of pictures, you come down the mountain, you put them all on Instagram, and you get the glory. You get to tell stories for the rest of your life about how you climbed Mount Everest. But was it you who led the way? Was it you who led the way? Not really. Because every step of the journey was accompanied by a servant leader whose job it was to help you succeed in your mission. And so the same is true of Hess's book. And it's what got Robert Greenleaf to begin thinking about leadership in a different way. And so for 11 years, Greenleaf's idea of a servant as leader infatuated him until 1970 when he wrote his first essay about servant leadership titled The, the Servant as Leader. And so later he described his philosophy this way. He said, the servant leader is a servant first. The servant leader is a servant first. And so becoming a servant leader begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. And then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. But that person is sharply different from the one who is leader first. And so the difference manifests itself in the care taken by the servant first to make sure that other people's highest priority uh, needs are being served. And so the best test and the most difficult to minister is this. This is his test. Do those served grow as persons? Do those served grow as persons? And do they, while being served, become healthier, 
become wiser, become autonomous and freer and more likely themselves to become servants. That's his test. You know you're, you're succeeding at servant leadership if those things happen. And so what I've come to realize about myself as I navigate kind of the learning that it takes to be an effective leader is that, that I had it backwards, according to Greenleaf. Again, not on purpose, but, but perhaps by nature and nurture. It was, it was sort of my, my default approach to leadership to act as leader first and not necessarily as servant. What I've had to work to overcome is that approach, that it's, it's been a goal of mine to learn and recognize when I need to be a servant first and when I need to lead through service. Because what, what Greenleaf knew that I and I, I perhaps a lot of others throughout history most surely did not was that the idea of a, of a servant leader did not originate with him. It did not originate with him, and you probably saw this coming. It originated with a guy some 2,000 years ago by the name of, help me out, Jesus. Yeah. And in fact, Greenleaf recognized this. It was a foundational component of his teaching. He pointed people to Jesus. He said, this isn't my idea. Jesus has been modeling this for a long time. And so as we read back in April, around Easter, uh, before the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. It's the beginning of, of Passover. And in Luke 22, Jesus begins to make preparations for the Passover meal. And so they're invited to, to buy a homeowner to go upstairs into a large pre-furnished room. And the text says, this is verse 14, if you want to read along. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so he took bread. He gave thanks. We know the story well. He broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so for a moment, the conversation shifts to the eventual betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. And then it takes a sharp left turn. It says in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest, which of them was considered to be best. And it almost sounds exactly like the kind of conversation that I would have fallen victim to or fallen into. Who's the greatest? Who is the best? Who's the boss? Who's the patron? Who is and who are the clients among us? Those are the questions that these disciples, these apostles, are trying to figure out right now. And then Jesus begins to interject himself into the conversation. He says, guys, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over themselves or over call themselves benefactors. And I like Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. He words it this way. It's a little simpler to understand. He says, kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. And then he continues. He says, it's not going to be that way with you. It is not going to be that way with you. So heading back to the NIV, he says, instead, the greatest 
among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? He says, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus is talking to a group of men who've been raised up in and who are accustomed to this patron-client relationship all throughout society, all throughout culture. And as they gather this Passover evening, they recognize that they are in the presence of greatness. They recognize that they are in the presence of the Messiah. They see and understand that they are with a king. And they are 12 of his greatest friends. And so something begins to happen. Because what they're assuming, whether they realize it or not, is that they believe that they've made it in life. That by virtue of their proximity to greatness, by virtue of their proximity to royalty, their proximity to Jesus, that they have moved up in the world and they are no longer clients. They are who? They're patrons. They are no longer servants. They are the served. And in fact, the table is set for that very assumption. And the pun is absolutely intended here because after all, where do they find themselves at this very moment? Where do they find themselves? They're at a table, right? Are they not at a table reclined being served? Isn't this very meal proof to them that they've made it? And so in your NIV, the text talks about the men being at the table. But I think that phrase, at the table, sort of misses the entire posture of what's actually going on here. Because this isn't just being at a table. This is specifically reclining at a table. Reclining at a table. Something you could only do if you were being served. And you have to recognize that women, children, and slaves could not, would not, and did not recline at a table. They had to stand or do something else. The one who reclines at the table is the one who enjoys himself because he can afford it. The one who reclines is the greatest in their culture. And yet Jesus says, I am among you not as one who reclines, but I am among you as one who does what? Serves. And so Jesus is taking all of their preconceived ideas and notions of leadership all their concepts of power and prestige, and he's completely blowing them up. He's demonstrating a new kind of leadership. He's demonstrating what, what Greenleaf later called servant leadership, that in order for them to lead people to the kingdom, in order for them to lead people to Jesus, they're going to be different kinds of leaders. They have to be different kinds of leaders than the world had believed leaders to be. They're going to serve first. And so their time for tables and thrones are going to come later. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the French Laundry. It's probably the most famous restaurant that I know of in Northern California. It's up in Yountville. And uh, it's a three Michelin star restaurant with a famous chef and the whole bit. And as three Michelin star restaurants go, my understanding is if you have three stars, that means it's worth traveling like internationally to go see. Like you would buy a plane ticket, go out of country to go eat at that restaurant. <clears throat> so it's considered to be 
an excellent experience, an excellent meal. I want you to consider something. I want you to consider what your expectation, expectation of that meal would be if you were intending to go and have a nice dinner there. Maybe you're going for an anniversary, maybe you're going for a dinner, maybe you're going for some other uh, experience, some other event. Um, you might expect to have your car parked for you. Uh, you're probably gonna expect that your jackets are gonna be taken and hung up, that you're gonna be seated at a, a comfortable table, you're gonna be seated in comfortable chairs, uh, you're gonna have delicious appetizers, be served the finest wine, given exquisite food with polite and attentive service. Are we all in agreement? That's kind of what you'd expect if you go to a three Michelin star restaurant, right? And so to walk into the French Laundry is to enjoy yourself. It's to be treated like royalty. It's to be, in a sense, the patron. It's a sign, if only for an evening, if only for a moment, that you've sort of made it in life. Uh, it's your time to enjoy the finer things. And so imagine, as you settle in, for this beautiful two or three hour experience, the kind of thing that memories are made of, maybe the kind of experience that you've waited an entire year for. Imagine if Jesus walked in and he handed you nicely folded a uniform and he told you that your place at this restaurant is not as a diner, but it's as a server. It's as a busboy, it's as a maitre d', it's as a valet, it's as you know, whatever position you might be, it is not as a diner. And so in that moment, you'd be confronted with a decision with a choice, do I stay where I am and enjoy this experience for all it's worth, or do I listen to what Jesus said? Do I ignore what Jesus said and stay where I am, or do I listen to what Jesus said and leave the table? Do I listen and leave the table? And guys, I think the only way for, for us to obey Jesus in that moment would be to leave the table. He hands you the uniform and says, this isn't your place. And so the only way for the disciples to, to live the life that Jesus was calling them to that Passover evening was for them to leave the table. Because I want you to think about what the table represents. The table is a place of nourishment. It's a place where you're fed. It's a place where you're energized for what's ahead. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of rest. We just spent all yesterday having my, my family over for the first family reunion we've had in 30 years. It was a beautiful day. Guess where we spent most of our time? It was around a table. It's that place where you are, you are rested and encouraged and nourished and comfortable being together. And oftentimes, it's a place where you are served. Maybe it's your mom who's doing the serving. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's at a restaurant. But it's a place, oftentimes, where someone is being served. And so Jesus is telling his closest followers that in order for them to follow him, they have to leave the table. They have to be the one who serves. And so if you take nothing else from this message today, I want you and I both to get this image in our heads and understand that as Christians, the only time we are called to the table is when Jesus is at the head of the table. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus tells them that he's conferring on them a kingdom. And he says, it is so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, you know, we're welcome to recline at Jesus' table, just as the disciples, just as the apostles are doing here in Luke 22. But until that day comes, the kingdom of God arrives. Our mission is to leave the table. Until the kingdom of God arrives, our mission is to leave the table. And so that doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right. What it means is that we're in a daily battle, every single one of us, to reverse our place in society so that we are no longer the served but we are the ones who are doing the serving. And so the, the thrust of today's message is a look at what it means to give yourself away to Jesus. 
To give yourself away to Jesus is to sit in our place of comfort at the French laundry and to choose to put our napkin down, to put our fork down, to put our drink down, and to stand up and take the place as one who serves. And so every facet of our lives today requires some form of leadership, whether they be in politics or whether they be in parenting or at work or in marriage or even in church. And so as followers of Jesus, the same principle holds true, that to be a truly great politician, it is not about being one who is served. It is about being one who serves, that you leave the table, you go out into your community among your constituents, and you listen to their fears, you listen to their concerns, and you act on their behalf. When I hear people frustrated with politics, well, it's because people aren't doing those things, right? They're not leading as one who serves. To be great at work is not to have others do your bidding for you, it's to leave the table or desk in, in those circumstances and go out and figure out how to help those who are working with you succeed in their jobs and to do their jobs better. It's about doing the little things that go unseen. It's about staying late. It's about staying to the end. It's about getting there early. It's about showing up every day. To be great as a mom or dad requires, again, that you leave the table and you teach your kids new skills, that you prepare them for adulthood, that you serve your kids, and in so doing, you invite them to also leave the table too, that your servant leadership is not so that they are served, but so that the serving is mutual, that you're teaching them to go along with you in leaving the table. In marriage, you leave the table. You do whatever it takes to serve your spouse. You attend to their needs, even, even if they don't reciprocate what you're doing for them. And in church, as the church, we are called to leave the table. And that means that, that we all as Christians listen to the needs of one another. That as a family of believers, we work to serve one another. And so sometimes we do that with our money. Other times we do that with our time or with our hands and feet or our study or our volunteering. But the table is anywhere most likely that you are most comfortable. It's the place that you know you want to be. It might be your bed on a Sunday morning. It might be in front of the TV watching football. It might be in a place of power, a place of authority. But all of us have a table that we love to recline at. And Jesus says the greatest among us are those who leave the table, who take up their cross daily, and who follow him. And so if you want to give yourself away to Jesus, you are called, I am called, we are called to leave the table and to lead as one who serves. And so you may not think of yourself as a leader. No, okay, that's great for leaders, but I'm not much of a leader. But even if that's true, we are all called to lead people to Christ. Can I get an amen there? We are all called to lead people to Christ. And we cannot do it unless we leave the table, unless we, we leave what's comfortable and we set down our forks and we pick up our serving trays. Because the greatest climbers on Mount Everest aren't the people who, hear, who we hear stories about. It's the servant leaders. It's the Sherpas who make it possible for everyone else who takes the glory, for everyone else who gets that Instagram moment. It's the Sherpas who are the greatest. And so the greatest among us are the ones who leave the table daily and they serve. They're the Trinidads, they're the Nathaniels, they're the Crystals, they're the Austins, they're the servants among us. 
And so leaving the table comes easier for some people than it does for others. And it certainly didn't come most naturally to me, but that's the call that Jesus places on our lives. And so at Lake Merced, my hope, my heart is that we be a church who leaves the table, who leaves what's comfortable, who leaves the comfy confines of this building to, to, to go and, and be with the uncomfortable, or to do what's uncomfortable, that we be a church who leaves the familiar for the unfamiliar, who leaves the easy for the hard, who leaves the, the preferable for the unpreferable, and who leaves what's dirty, or leaves what's clean for what's dirty. That may we be a church who washes feet. May we be a church who feeds the hungry. May we be a church who loves the unlovable, and who invites others into our homes, and who picks up the tab for lunch, and who drives one another home from the doctor. When we do those things, church, I think we are choosing to leave the table. We are choosing to follow Jesus. And I pray that we would do that. Let's pray. Father, you have, uh, you have blessed us abundantly. And we, we recognize that in those blessings, sometimes we get comfortable. I, I, I can only speak for myself here. But it's, it's so easy to get comfortable, uh, so much so that, that I look after my own needs first instead of the needs of others. And Father, your call is that we love others the way that we love ourselves, in the same way that we love ourselves. And Father, there isn't a day that has gone by where I haven't fed myself, where I haven't put a roof over my own head, where I haven't made sure I was well clothed. Uh, there, there are ample examples of ways in which I have taken care of myself. And so, Father, I pray that you would do a work in me to be a servant so that I could serve this church and that you would do a work in this church so that we could serve this community. Uh, Father, help us to be leaders, but not leaders first. Help us to be servants first. Help us to lead people to Jesus and in so doing, bless them abundantly by caring for their needs above our very own. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time of worship. And Lord, if there's anyone in this, in this room who, who needs prayer, who needs to, to rededicate some aspect of their lives to you, Father, I pray that you would soften hearts. Bless us this morning. Bless us this week. Empower us so that we can go into our community and be servants. Help us to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. Help us to be uncomfortable and dirty so that we can go and bless other people and be Jesus to them. And I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Church, as we get ready to sing this song, I want to invite you up. If there's anyone here who would like to be baptized, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If there's anyone here who would like to, to rededicate their lives to Christ in some way, I want to invite you to do that as well. We'd love to pray for you if you have any needs to, to pray for. But I'd like everyone to stand and let's sing and let's worship God with everything we have.